May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. The texts we've just heard read aloud effectively explode two commonly held assumptions. There is firstly the assumption that the Hebrew scriptures are all about judgment and that by inference the God pictured in the Old Testament is one who very strictly weighs out and measures sin and then delivers punishment. While the New Testament is about grace and mercy, yet here tonight we have heard the prophet Isaiah's words of deep hope and abundant mercy, while it's Jesus in the gospel who speaks of the urgency to repent. Unless you repent, you will all perish, just as they did, he says. Not that the two texts contradict each other, for underlying both is God's call to embrace the merciful invitation to follow his way and to begin that now. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near, says Isaiah. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord, that he may have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Jesus essentially echoes that message of Isaiah in his short parable of the fig tree planted in a vineyard. A parable in which the gardener is prepared to do everything he can to keep that barren fig tree from being cut down, to help it to bear fruit. Don't cut it down yet, says the gardener. Give it another year. I'll loosen the soil. I'll dig in some fertilizer. I'll see if it can't be brought around. And in this gift of time and of care for that tree, we're given an, a, an image of grace abundant. Give it time. Yet even the patient gardener knows that there are limits. And so he says, if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. And it's on that note that Jesus ends this little parable. Real things are at stake here. There is such a thing as judgment in the gospel. Now that bridges us to the second commonly held assumption that was challenged in these readings. Namely, that suffering and adversity always have some logic to them. More specifically, that there is some kind of a direct line that runs from sinfulness, from a breach towards suffering, almost as a kind of a payment. If you're sick or you've lost your job, if you're living with depression, or if a strong wind has blown down a tree and it's coming through your living room window, you must have done something to deserve it. That's a common assumption. There is a divine order, a rationale for everything. So this thing that I'm dealing with, whatever it is, must be due to my spiritual or moral failing. Nothing's random. That's what we often assume. The flip side of that, of course, is the idea that because you've got a good job, 
almost never get sick, and your kids are astonishingly well-behaved, God is clearly rewarding you for your faith. Or, to push things to the absurd, because someone gave me a pair of premier tickets to the Jets game, and I found a free parking space just steps from the MTS Center, God is clearly blessing me. Guess what? Jesus is not even slightly interested in that kind of thinking. There were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now that's apparently a reference to an incident in which Pilate had sent his troops into the temple to deal with something or other, or maybe just to intimidate the people. They were known to do that. And some Galilean blood was shed. Some people were killed. Right there in the most holy and revered of places, people were killed. Jesus asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? No. And then he offers another example. Or those 18 people who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No. Whether these people were killed in a vicious act of military violence or in the collapse of a shoddily built tower, Jesus is simply not prepared to entertain the idea that their deaths were the result of some sin, that they were deserving of it in some way more than anyone else, that they were being punished by God for a moral or religious failure. He is, in fact, pointing to a kind of a wrong place, wrong time, randomness. And that kind of wrong place, wrong time, random, so often characterizes tragedy, doesn't it? Not that we should hear this as being a thinly defeatist view of the world, in which all of us are merely potential victims of randomness, with no real freedom, no choices to be made. We do have real freedom. And we do make real choices, even if we can't control everything or hedge ourselves against all that is random. The person who has great health is also probably making all kinds of decisions about how they're living. The person who has a job they love has made all kinds of decisions about their education, about their vocation, about their priorities that have led them there. But to push things a bit, the person who found the great parking space at the hockey game has probably gone downtown two hours early. For people living with real adversity, and I know there are people here, I know your stories, you still continue to make all kinds of decisions about how to live with that adversity, how to find freedom from it and through it. The person who might be struggling with depression, for instance, can still make choices about taking medication, about eating well, 
about making sure they don't just hide away in their apartment and isolate, about reaching out for support when the nights get really long and really hard. Not that any of that is quick fix. The adversity is still there, but there's still choices. There's still freedom. Which is where the other part of Jesus' very clear, no, they weren't being punished for sin, comes to the fore. Do you think those who died at Pilate's hands or in the collapse of that tower were worse sinners than any of you? No, I tell you, Jesus says. And then he adds, but. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. And he says it twice. Where's his logic? I mean, he seemed to be saying that the death of those in the temple or at the Tower of Siloam, those deaths had been random, not tied to any particular sin or offense, nothing worse than anybody else, certainly. Yet now Jesus seems to suggest that a failure to repent will lead to death, to a perishing just as they did. Is he trying to have it both ways, like work both sides of the street at the same time? He is, I believe, pointing to the very real choices that are involved in the act of repenting, to the very real freedom to turn around, which is one of the meanings of that word, to turn around, as it were, to take a new path. We might quite naturally hear that in terms of, you know, renouncing certain practices or bad habits, amending our ways and of returning to the Lord that he may have mercy, as Isaiah says, of placing our hands in the, our lives in the hands of the one who will abundantly pardon. That's not a bad way to hear this call to repentance, though a very real question remains. Do I repent? And the literal meaning of the Greek word metanoia, that's the word that gets translated repent, the literal meaning is to think differently after. That's what it means, to think differently after. Or to have a changed heart and a changed mind. Do I, do I repent in that way? Do I have a changed heart, a changed mind, to think differently, to turn around in order to avoid punishment? Is that what he's saying? Is Jesus pressing for a, a kind of a fear-based conversion? A changed mind, a changed heart, in order that we might avoid punishment? Unless you repent. Here I find some of the reflections of Bishop N.T. Wright to be truly illuminating. What does repent mean in this context, Bishop Wright asks. And by context, he's pointing to the politically charged climate of Jerusalem, of Jesus' day, a context in which many were working toward revolution as that which would free them from the tyrannies of the Roman Empire. What does he mean by repent in that context? Not simply give up your private sins, Bishop Wright says. Rather, turn from your headlong flight 
away from God's mercy, from your quest for your own national salvation by rebellion against Rome. Again, not simply give up your private sins, though that might be important. Rather, turn from your headlong flight away from God's mercy, from your quest for your own national salvation by rebellion against Rome. Unless you give it up, Roman swords and falling stonework will be your lot, not as arbitrary punishment from a vengeful God, but as the direct result of the way you have freely chosen, following your own thoughts rather than God's thoughts, not as punishment, but as consequence. That's how it's going to unfold In other words, Jesus seems to be saying, keep choosing that path you're on and it will all come crashing down. That's the way the military and political machine is working in our day, he says to them. Change your hearts and minds and follow God. God whose ways are higher than your ways, whose thoughts are higher than your thoughts, not out of fear, but because it's true. And it is pressing. It is pressing. Even the patient gardener in the parable has but a year to get that fig tree to bear fruit. Well, if you think about it in those terms, that he's speaking to a very particular situation, then it's really interesting to see what follows. We only read to the end of this little parable But right after that, there is first a healing story. It's one of those great stories of hope and restoration for somebody who has no hope. And then there are two little parables. The parable of the mustard seed and of the yeast or the leaven buried in the dough. Both of those two little parables speak of the nature of Jesus' kingdom and of God's reign. It looks insignificant, like a mustard seed, like a little pinch of yeast in the dough. It looks insignificant, this little Jesus movement, he and his fishermen followers, a peasant carpenter, and a ragtag group of followers. I mean, it's maybe a little dangerous because the other peasants are beginning to take it very seriously But he's not actually going to do anything or change anything. Not wandering the countryside with that bunch. Nothing is going to be changed. Nothing that is but hearts and minds. And in God's way, changed minds and changed hearts are like yeast hidden in the dough or like the tiny mustard seed dropped into the soil, almost hidden. Which is why, under the reign of God, the call to repentance is so very real and so very pressing. Because in the strange economy of God's kingdom, it's changed minds and changed hearts that matter, not Roman swords. In this season of Lent, we are called again to look deep inside ourselves at the changes needed in our own minds 
and our own hearts, and to trust that in God's strange economy, those changes can do great things, not only inwardly, but beyond. Amen.